Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... The author and scholar Shoshana Zuboff tells us why we need to be wary of our smart devices. Not only is the thermostat offering to regulate efficiently the use of energy in our home, but it is siphoning off all the data from our home to third parties, none of whom take any accountability for the uses of those data. And how the makers of the video game Fortnite have gaming platforms in their sights. And just as Valve successfully undercut the bricks and mortars guys back in the 2000s, Epic is hoping to undercut Steam. But first, we are heading to Antarctica. Last month, a ship-carrying 50 scientists set off to explore a new world. Iceberg A68. It's four times the size of London, and when it broke off from the rest of the shelf, it uncovered a marine ecosystem that has been hidden for perhaps as long as 120,000 years. On board the vessel, the RV Polarstern, and with a handy sat phone, is the marine biogeographer Dr. Hugh Griffiths, and he's on the phone now. Hugh, how are you doing, and where are you? Okay, yeah, literally, I'm standing, well, sitting in a cabin looking out the window, and there's zero open water. There's just frozen ocean for as far as I can see. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that you are stuck frozen in the ocean right now? I wouldn't say stuck. We're moving. This ship is an icebreaker, so it's designed to break the ice. So you may occasionally hear some bumps and crashes in the background. It's not me falling over. It's the ship smashing through up to about a meter and a half to two meters thickness of ice. Okay. And so when do you expect to arrive at A68? Honestly, it depends on the thickness of the ice that we have coming up against us. So we made pretty good progress for the first week. But if the ice thins out, we could be there in a couple of days. And if it's thick ice ahead of us, then it could be another week or so before we get there. And how is what's happening going to change when you get to A68? What are you immediately going to start doing? We have almost 50 scientists on board, and we're all doing, well, not all doing different things, but there's lots of different groups, people studying everything from the plankton in the water right down to the sediments on the bottom of the sea and everything in between. So my group is looking at the animals that live on the bottom of the sea and what sort of community used to live under the ice shelf. So an ice shelf is a very thick layer of ice that now it's broken off to become this giant iceberg, but it effectively blocks out all light for the water column above, meaning that any food that gets to that place has to have come in from outside because you can't have any photosynthesis or algae growing in the water there. How did those species that exist underneath the iceberg? It's partly the current. So we expect there to be a community that's fairly similar to a deep-sea community where they wait for food to come to them sort of the little bits that drift down to the bottom of the sea. 
it'll be similar, but a kind of horizontal version of that, where currents will bring little bits of food in every so often into this environment. And so it's the animals that are best adapted to cope with low amounts of food or really intermittent food that comes and goes that will probably do best under an ice shelf. But this is only our best guess, really, because all we really know about the life under ice shelves to date is from drill holes, so people studying the ice or geology and drilling through the ice sheet and then just dropping a tiny camera down to give us a sort of one-metre-square picture of the bottom of the sea, which isn't enough to tell you what really lives there. So this will be our first real chance to find out what the community under there looks like. So how will you be studying it when you get there? Well, we have a really amazing array of technology on the ship, as well as some good old-fashioned fishing nets. So we have everything from special landers that go down for 48 hours and sit and observe the ecosystem. And we have towed camera systems, so they pull them along behind the ship, and they produce a 3D map of the seafloor and high-resolution images, so you can actually build your own 3D model of what the bottom of the sea looks like. And then on top of that, we actually physically collect specimens so that we can identify any new species and also do DNA work on some of these animals to see how closely they are related to animals from the deep sea, for example, and the other animals that live in other parts of Antarctica. Now, you're expecting to find organisms that have been unknown to humankind until now. Is that correct? Yes. Antarctica is an amazing place to work because, as it stands, even if we go somewhere that is relatively well-known in Antarctica, it's nowhere near as well-known as the rest of the world. So we always find new species to science anyway. But in an area that nobody's ever looked in, a habitat that nobody's ever been to before, then I'm expecting that anything living there, there must be a good percentage of it. If we compare it to the deep sea, more than 50% of what we find in the deep sea is new to science. So I'm looking at, well, hoping for those kind of numbers in this case. That's so interesting. Now, let me ask, this is science for science's sake. But do you imagine any practical applications of this that you can envision today? Well, firstly, it will help us understand a lot of things, including the role of the ice shelves in controlling biodiversity on a global scale. So that helps us understand conservation issues and what we should do about areas like this when the ice does break up, for example. But also we're discovering new species and we have loads of biochemicals and things that we use from pharmaceuticals and drugs and things like that that come from sea creatures already. So the potential in the future, once we know that some of these creatures exist and they can survive in really extreme environments, they're more likely to produce more interesting chemicals anyway. So although we're not here doing a bioprospecting crew, so we're not here to do that, sort of find those chemicals, even just knowing that these animals exist gives other researchers the opportunity to think about how the way these animals survive could help humankind in terms of drugs or new materials that can cope with low temperatures, for example. And what are the major challenges that you're facing in the exploration? <laughs> I think I've mentioned ice about 100 times in this conversation, so I guess you'd guess that the ice is a big factor, and it really is one of the iciest places in the world in terms of sea ice. And even when Antarctica is facing record low sea ice levels, this one area tends to keep its sea ice. So for us, in comparison to another expedition that happened a month ago that was able to get to where we are within a few days. It's taken us a week. So all you need is the wind to blow in the right direction and the ice will move away and we get even faster. But if the wind's blowing in the wrong direction, then the ice is a major challenge because once you're in the ice, even if you have a storm or strong winds, 
the sea doesn't whip up into big waves because the ice is essentially a cap on the top of it and stops it getting blown about. But it's great in terms of with anyone who gets seasick doesn't get sick when we're in the ice. But in terms of getting through it, it just slows us down so much. Hugh, thank you very much. It's been great chatting with you. And you. Thank you very much. We will be speaking to Hugh again throughout the expedition. So if any listeners have any questions for him, please email us at radio at economist.com. We'll choose among the questions and we'll put those to him for a future podcast. Next up, more and more homes have interactive devices that connect to the internet, from phones, speakers and screens, and even thermostats. And all of these products collect data, ostensibly to provide users with a better experience. Yet the data is also often collected and sometimes sold to other companies. This term, surveillance economy or surveillance capitalism, has been popularized by the author and scholar Shoshana Zuboff, and it's something she writes about in her latest book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. And to discuss this, she joins me in the studio now. Hello, Shoshana, and welcome to Babbage. Hello, Kenneth. So pleased to be here. Thank you. First, what is the surveillance economy? Ah, what is the surveillance economy? Well, let me begin with a very brief description of surveillance capitalism, if I may, and the way in which it has spread through our various economic sectors in order to create a surveillance economy. So I define surveillance capitalism in this way. We have long known that capitalism evolves by taking things that live outside the market and bringing them inside the market dynamic in order that they can be purchased, sold, and so forth. This is what we call commodities. So, for example, the historian Karl Polanyi famously wrote about industrial capitalism, how it took nature, something that exists in its own time and space, outside the market. It brought it into the market dynamic, reborn now as real estate, as land that can be sold and purchased. Similarly, the idea of work, things that people did in their homes, in their fields, into the market economy and reborn as labor that could be sold and purchased. So surveillance capitalism follows in these footsteps, but with a dark twist. Because what surveillance capitalism does is it unilaterally claims private human experience for the market dynamic, reborn now as behavioral data. These behavioral data then follow a track into surveillance capitalism's factories, its production processes, if you will. These production processes are called things today like artificial intelligence, machine learning, machine intelligence. So we have behavioral data moving through supply chains into the new factories of machine intelligence where they produce prediction products. Okay, let me challenge you on this because I go online and Spotify recommends music and it does based on my previous listening behavior and it sounds pretty good to me. Amazon recommends great books and I love to do that and it's a super interesting service. I've got artificial intelligence that can tailor around the lighting of a city because of the usage patterns of that city even if it's down to the individual on a road. 
I look around at the surveillance economy and I think, yeah, we might need rules of the road for this, but actually it's a pretty good thing. You come to a different conclusion. Well, I don't think you're describing the surveillance economy there, Kenneth. You're describing the promise and potential of digital technology. We ran to the internet and we embraced the digital because we expected empowerment and democratization and efficient use of resources, all the things that you've just described. What we didn't expect is that if we install one Nest thermostat in our bedroom, Nest, by the way, a company that is owned by Google, the pioneering surveillance capitalist, one Nest thermostat, according to two erudite scholars right here in the University of London, they concluded that any even mildly vigilant consumer, once installing such a thermostat, should review a minimum of 1,000 privacy contracts. Because not only is the thermostat offering to regulate efficiently the use of energy in our home, or perhaps give us good feedback that might help our our health or other other aspects of our family's well-being. But it is siphoning off all the data from our home to third parties who then siphon to third parties and other third parties, none of whom take any accountability for the uses of those data. I'm not sure I agree again. And where you see a thousand contracts and see it as a problem, almost as if it's sort of some spooky, intricate tentacles reaching into the heart of our soul – I see the backstop of law and actually I see a form of transparency that I don't have to really worry about as a consumer because if I do feel aggrieved, I can knock on a lawyer's door and they can examine the contracts and they can worm their ways from corporation to contract through all the routes to find out what's happening to the data. And in Europe in particular because of the data legislation, I feel more confident than ever. Mm. Well, sadly, that's a false confidence. And I don't know if in the time we have I can persuade you of that, but I hope that in the fullness of time you will realize, please do not be so trusting. First of all, there is no, quote, backstop of law. These operations have rooted and flourished over the past 20 years, barely impeded by law. Lots of reasons for that, but that is the bottom line. There are no laws that are really regulating this. Even in the EU now, where we have finally the GDPR, which builds on privacy law and does give us some new regulations that we can claim as rights, these regulations are, shall we say, a beginning they do recognize the individual's rights to privacy. They begin to put in some mechanisms. But whether or not the GDPR will be able to stand up to the kinds of operations I've been describing to you wholly depends upon how citizens mobilize to take these regulations into the court and demand a much fuller, broader, deeper set of changes than are even indicated in the GDPR. Shoshana Zuboff, it's great to have you on Babbage. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kenneth. Finally, Epic. The makers of the hugely popular video game Fortnite have already been taking the gaming world by storm. 78 million people are thought to play at least once a month. However, next in their sights is the gaming platforms of Steam and Google as the Epic Game Store is hoping to mirror those successes and become a major player in the field. Joining me to discuss how this might happen is Tim Cross, the Economist Technology Editor. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. 
Tim, just so I understand things, there is a Mortal Kombat about to take place in the video game industry. Who are the players and what are they trying to do? That's right. So the incumbent in PC gaming is a platform called Steam, which is owned by a private American company called Valve. And Steam is a digital store. You log on to it, you can buy games. Almost all of the PC games that are available are available through Steam, and most people get their games there. We don't have exact figures because Valve is privately held, but the best guess is their market share is somewhere north of 70%. And Valve really got to that position by disrupting, if you like, the old traditional model of selling games. By making it digital, the same way that's happened with you know, music and films and so on, we're able to cut the costs. They take a 30% cut of every game that's sold on Steam, which leaves 70% for the developers. And it's great for consumers as well, because you can buy games without getting up from your sofa. You only need to go to one place. It's, they built in things like social features. You can jump into multiplayer games with your friends and so on. And all this is built into you know, a pretty dominant company. Sounds like they're unassailable, but they're being assailed. They are. So the challenger is a company called Epic, which, as you say, makes Fortnite. And interestingly, they're really mirroring Valve's original approach from 10 or 15 years ago. They have a very popular game in Fortnite. It's not available on Steam. So if you want Fortnite, you have to go to Epic's website and download specialist software of their own, and you can then download Fortnite. Now, this software includes a game store of its own, which is a direct rival to Steam. And just as Valve successfully undercut the bricks and mortars guys back in the 2000s, Epic is hoping to undercut Steam. So Tim Sweeney, who runs Epic, has said before that he thinks the model that Steam uses is probably profitable on a cut as low as 8%. In the event, Epic's decided it's going to charge developers 12%, and it's hoping that they will find that attractive enough to come onto their platform instead of Valve. Now, they're backed by quite a bit of money. So Epic is part owned by Tencent, the big Chinese you know, gaming giant. It's just had about one and a quarter billion dollars of venture capital investment. Fortnite itself absolutely prints money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year from the sale of, of in-game goods. So it's going to be hard to challenge Valve, but of everyone, you know, Epic seems pretty well-placed. Tim, what do you think it's going to take to win? It seems like on the surface, this is a commodity product delivering up the software to the consumers and what the companies are doing are reaching out to the games companies and offering a piece of the action and they can adjust how much of profit they're going to share. On the other hand, maybe there are services or innovation that can go around to it to take what could look like a commodity product, the distribution of a video game online, and turn it into something more than that. What do you think it's going to take for a company to strategically win? Well, I think you know, offering the developers a lower price is a big deal. And trying to leverage the popularity of your existing game is a big deal. And that, as we said, that is how Steam got to where it is in the first place. So I think that that's a big factor. But you're right, there is more to it than that. So so one of the effects of Steam is that it, it's made it so easy to publish games. One of the big problems is what they call discovery. So how do you get games in front of consumers, which the developers are really worried about because if you can't do that well, you're just going to disappear in this vast sea of, of, of other games. There are social features. Steam has, uh, you know, you can message your friends, you can jump into games with them at the click of a button, you can see what they've recommended, what they're enjoying playing. So there's lots of kind of extra value you can build around this. And for now, Epic Store is a bit more bare bones. You know, this stuff doesn't exist yet. I assume they will they will add it with time. But I guess the question of, you know, to what extent does the, the sort of core business offering matter versus all this, this stuff that you add on top... I don't know, and we'll just have to wait and see. And Google. Yes, so Steam is one thing. Um, Google is an entirely different thing. Now, you can play 
Fortnite on an Android phone. But again, you can't actually get a hold of the copy of the game from Google's official Play Store. If you want it, you have to go to Epic's website and download their own special software again. It's not available on Steam or on Google. And Google is Epic's sort of second and even bigger target. So again, the Steam numbers are a bit speculative, but best guess is they make about $4 billion a year in revenue. Google's Play Store is about $24 billion a year, and about $10 billion of that is games. And Epic's plan, which they haven't actually put into action yet, you can already buy PC games on the Epic Store. You can't yet buy Android ones, but you will be able to soon. Their plan is very similar. Google also takes a 30% cut of all the apps on the Play Store. Epic's only going to take 12. They're hoping that Fortnite will be popular enough to persuade people to sort of desert en masse from the Play Store and go to Epic's. So, you know, if, if that attack works on Steam, there's no reason to think it won't necessarily work on Google. And you know, potentially you could go even further. So games are the single biggest category on the Play Store but they're not the only one. There are lots of other apps that people download. And there's no sort of law of the cosmos saying that the cut has to be 30%. If Epic can get some traction with a 12% cut, you could see lots of app developers heading that way as well. And Apple? So Apple is the third really big platform. The difference with Apple is that it's much harder to run non-Apple apps on your iPhone because the whole ecosystem is locked down. It's what they call a walled garden. So at the moment, Epic have no way in. But there is, interestingly, there is a case at the American Supreme Court right now brought by an app developer arguing that that amount of control effectively is is anti-competitive and that Apple will have to open up their app store. Now, I don't know how that case is going to go, but if the developer wins and Apple is forced to open up the App Store, then the same logic applies. There's no rule of the cosmos that says Apple has to charge 30%. There's no reason why you know, a competitor couldn't come in and try to charge less. So watch this space. So in other words, Apple might be rotten to the core. Google could be out of steam. It's game over for Valve. It's certainly going to be an epic battle. This is why you host the show, Ken. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. You can get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.